welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdell. It's also exciting to think if we can value carbon properly, how it can be a real, real alternative. If we can price carbon effectively, it can become a real alternative to oil and gas. What I mean by that is you will have, you might have seen that earlier on this year, the Democratic Republic of Congo issued licenses for more exploration right. in the Congo Basin. Just like right, really important ecosystems. Absolutely vital. And okay, it's exploration at this point, but if they get approved, then it starts increasing into actual extraction. Now, imagine if we could price the carbon of these areas of land effectively and start selling the carbon credits for the Democratic Republic of Congo or for project developers from that area, all of a sudden there's a real clear incentive as to why they shouldn't proceed with oil and gas exploration in those areas. All right, Joe, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Great to be here, Nick. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so to dive right in, let's get folks up to speed, maybe a zero to one on what you're building at Thalo and the tech that's behind it. How do you describe what you're up to in 60 to 90 seconds to folks that have no idea or no history of uh, chatting with you like I do? Yeah, great question. Um, At Thalo, our kind of key driver is environmental impact. And we believe that in order to create impact, you need to scale. And that's why we're building the future of the carbon markets on-chain by developing the Web3 infrastructure to facilitate institutional level regenerative finance. Our flagship product, the Thalo Carbon Exchange, is a registry-friendly, developer-focused exchange that would enable the transparent, traceable, and highly liquid buying, selling, and trading of carbon credits on-chain. The exchange will be easily accessible and incredibly secure, ultimately enabling more people to engage in the carbon markets and resulting in new forms of liquidity. The target audience for us is the legacy carbon market players, so the platform will be used predominantly in fiat, um, with future iterations enabling the use of cryptocurrencies. But by being able to build on chain, we'll have the added benefit of legacy carbon users being able to engage in some of the exciting developments on Web3, like utilizing on-chain carbon credits for stablecoin and treasury collateralization, which I'm sure we'll get into in a bit more detail later. This year for us has been build, build, build. And we've recently launched the world's first two-way bridge with a registry, which enables the on-ramping and off-ramping of carbon credits on-chain with the underlying source. We're looking to launch the MVP next year and start talking to the world, bringing more clients on and scaling the markets as we've intended all along. Excellent. Congrats on the progress. First of all, I was at a happy hour last night and it was interesting to talk to different folks about different areas of climate and climate tech solutions that they're interested in. And folks are very split on carbon markets as to whether they think it's a useful solution or something that should be heavily invested in or that folks should pay a lot of attention to. Before we get into the kind of blockchain piece, even just starting with that question of you know the role of carbon markets in mitigating climate change, I guess, for one, when did you get interested in it and what have you learned over the years that's made you really passionate about building in this space? Sure. From a personal perspective, I've been in the sustainability industry in a broader sense for over 10 years now. Started with carbon accounting for large organizations as part of kind of EU directives and moved on to onshore solar 
and wind and project financing and development. And then most latterly was in consultancy, working with some of the largest organizations in the world, helping them to achieve practical, and practical is a very important point here, practical ways to achieving net zero. Now, as part of one of the pieces that I did there, it was a assessment of the carbon markets and how this organization could get involved. And it was very quick to see how much benefit, first of all, the carbon markets have. And I just want to build on that point a little bit, because I don't think I need to tell you or your listeners that we're in a bit of a tight spot in regards to the planet and the ecosystem. Mm. And in order to save the planet, we need to act fast and think about things differently. And how do we do that at scale and quickly? Ultimately, what we need to do is entirely rethink finance. Mm. We need to embed the offsetting of externalities that are caused by production and services into the very structures that create them. And this ultimately starts with carbon. The carbon markets are, are the most advanced instrument that's doing this, and therefore it's vitally important that we get it right. Because what really excites me is imagining a world in 20 or 50 years' time where all the products and services that you're purchasing as an individual or a business are wrapped in carbon, or biodiversity credits or plastic credits. Like These are all potential iterations of the future, but it starts with carbon. Mm -hmm. And that's why it is so important that we build this ecosystem, this marketplace, this industry in the right way. And unfortunately, it's not quite there yet. There are a lot of issues in the voluntary carbon markets. And Thalow released a fast-forward report, we called it, uh, not that long ago. And I encourage your listeners to have a read of it. It's on the website. But there's tons and tons that we could improve. So some of the key issues are transparency, traceability, and ultimately, the deal that the project developers, so those typically in the host countries of the projects, are getting. Blockchain solves a lot of this. On the traceability and transparency side, there's the immutability of the blockchain, the ability to see everything that's going on, but and for it not to be changed, of course, mm-hmm. but also the idea that project developers could when I was initially looking at it, had very limited direct market access. They couldn't engage directly with the people that were purchasing the carbon credits and ultimately offsetting them. And that was one of the key things that stood out to me is how do we build something that disintermediates the marketplace where many of these intermediaries are putting 10, 15, 20%. In fact, some of the findings from the fast forward report was 100% over 100% on the carbon credits that they purchased from the project developers. How do we ensure that this, well, the carbon markets generally are such an equitable transfer of wealth from developed to developing nations? How do we make sure that most of that money is going to those that are actually protecting the environment for us? And this is where the idea for the exchange was. Again, an open exchange. But yeah, it, it was identifying that There is a lack of traceability, a lack of transparency, price transparency being one of the key things there, and that project developers were getting squeezed a little bit that really inspired us to develop this exchange that fixes a lot of those problems or makes it a lot harder to hide things, let's say, when you're bringing blockchain into the picture. Yeah, I I definitely resonate with the idea that, you know, building 
composable technology that folks can use in other financial applications, for instance, to embed, as you said, climate positive work and people's everyday lives. Like that's definitely very exciting and also super excited about the prospect of more money getting staying with project developers on the ground as opposed to going to brokers or other middlemen that have traditionally sat in kind of an ad hoc way between them and buyers of carbon credits. I guess one you've already kind of spoken to many of the things that the technology is capable of and what you're building. But you know, when you think about the landscape, there's a number of other players that at least have a similar or adjacent pitch in this kind of blockchain meets carbon markets world. Mm-hmm. What are the main ways you would want you know, to stick out in people's minds when they see Thalo as opposed to a flow carbon or someone else like that, that you differentiate yourself specifically? Firstly, I'd say I encourage anyone to try and get into the blockchain and carbon nexus. It's an incredible space and there's a lot of people doing some fantastic work. But there are a few things that kind of set us apart from the competitors that are also in the space. Firstly, from the outset, we have been what we call registry friendly. And what Mm -hmm. that means is that we want to work directly with the registries. The reason that we've done that is because we believe that capital flows to nature at the speed of trust. And ultimately, we need speed here. And that's why it's so important to work with these legacy market actors who've spent the last two decades or so building that trust, refining methodologies, improving upon them on an ongoing basis, and ensuring that there's at least a base level of quality and that corporations and the people that we're ultimately trying to get to come onto the market can rely on. Now, that's not to say the registries are perfect. They're not. There's a lot of things that could be improved in terms of lead times for project development and so forth. But ultimately, we think it's very important that blockchain isn't something that completely reconstructs the marketplace. It's just additive to it. And so unlike some of the other players in the market, being an organization, an exchange, an application, an infrastructure um, that works with these legacy incumbents has been number one for us. The second thing I would say is our kind of standpoint here is that we are anti-commoditization. Now, what we're trying to do is take on the over-commoditization of carbon. And what I mean by that is that we want to ensure that credit characteristics, so the vintage, the project type, the location, are all easily identifiable and purchased against because that's exactly what our corporate clients are looking for. Mm -hmm. The corporate clients want to buy projects that they can tell a story about that align with their corporate social responsibilities. A lot of the other blockchain-based entities have taken some form of pooling approach. Now, the reason that they've taken a pooling approach is because there is an issue with liquidity, ultimately. Now, if we just listed every single project in its kind of underlying form, i.e. with all those different characteristics, what we call semi-fungible, then you have very, very small liquidity pockets. So one of the other key differentiators that we're developing, and again, we've released a blog post and it'll be available once we... um, launch the full exchange functionality is dynamic pooling. And I think this is one of the key innovations that that we've been working on that will really set us apart, not just from the blockchain space, but generally. So going back a step, carbon credits are what we call semi-fungible, meaning that 
whilst the credits have the same attributes, the vintage project, every project has a vintage, a project type, a location, an SDG, the values of these attributes are different. So you can have a 2018 vintage versus a 2020 vintage, the project type must be different. So whilst you have these headline attributes, all the values are different. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, like I said, leads to these small pockets of liquidity that aren't really exciting to large liquidity traders or people who want to invest and build a secondary market or engage in a secondary market with millions rather than hundreds of thousands. The NASDAQ, for instance. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So our solution, well, one of the solutions that many of the competitors in the space have developed is what we call static pools. A the pools have a minimum quality criteria that people can trade in and out of and are typically represented by a token or a ticker. You will have heard of some of them. Unfortunately, by design, these are quite susceptible to perverse incentives. I What I mean by that is if you're a trader and you can trade into this pool, many of them you can trade into, you're only going to put into the pool credits that are, are a lower price than the average price of the pool. So let's say... There's some arbitrage there, potentially, yeah. Exactly. So let's say the pool is worth $7 at one point. If you're a trader, you're going to go out to market and purchase the cheapest credits you possibly can, put and sell those into that pool. What that means is that ultimately the price and the quality decreases over time and they become unattractive at best for people to, to purchase. Solution to this is the dynamic pooling model. It solves the liquidity and quality problem by mimicking order book style trading approach, but with live and active pools that allows buyers to specify their exact value requirements. So an example of this is if I want to buy a Red Plus project in LATAM, then I will set that criteria and all of the spot credits that are on the platform will go into that pool. Got it. At the same time, someone could ask for just LATAM credits, and at the same time, these credits will be in different pools. So gotcha. they can be considered across different pools, and of course, the credit can only be purchased once, ensuring that it can't be double accounting. But what we've been able to do is analyze each and every one of these combinations of attributes, overall project types, and then offer features that you could find in traditional markets, such as buy limits, good till cancel orders, setting alerts for price movement, something that you really cannot do in the carbon markets as such. That's something that we think is going to be extremely attractive to traders. It makes it simple for buying carbon credits once you've identified what these particular pools are and will open up large liquidity streams as well. The final differentiation point, and it's quite a simple one, is that we're just very focused on the legacy carbon markets. They're our target audience. Blockchain is just what we're building on. It's not a necessity to engage with cryptocurrency or hold a wallet, so on and so forth. You can just really jump on at any time, purchase with any fiat currency. And yeah, but of course, as I mentioned earlier, engage in some of the exciting Web3 plays that are existing. Well, I like the idea of, it almost sounds kind of like a queryable database that you're building for these different pools where, you know, folks, they're not commoditized in the sense that people can still separate out very specific project attributes if they want to. But the overall intention of the platform is still to promote liquidity and because that has downstream implications for 
project developers being able to finance their work and do their work. Exactly. Good. I'm glad that I'm keeping up. I guess one thing that might be interesting for folks is let's quickly chart the path that a credit might take from development on the ground to someone perhaps like interfacing with it on your platform, like that stepwise process. If you could line that, lay that out for people that might help them track the path from your platform back to climate impact. So the great thing about the carbon markets is that it's not just about carbon. So taking the example of a Colombian project developer, in order to list their credits on our platform, what they'll have to do is they'll have to go through the entire registry project development from phase one through to the credit issuance. And what that requires is quite a lengthy, up to two years in some cases at the minute, a lengthy process of ensuring that they've calculated the carbon credits effectively, mm-hmm. they've proven that they're protecting the forest, but very importantly, and what is a very a kind of extra benefit of the carbon markets is that they will have to engage the local community. Mm. So carbon credits, the voluntary carbon markets is so much more than carbon. It's an opportunity to benefit the lives of people in indigenous communities, hard to reach, and a particular project developer that we worked with, Biofix, the work that they've done in protecting these, or the money that they've earned through protecting these areas of forestry, rainforest, has gone to building schools, building doctors, even a football pitch. Previously, finance would never have been directed to these areas. So that's super exciting. Anyway, a little bit by the by, but I think it's an important point to reference. Once they go through this kind of project development with whomever, whether it's Biocarbon Registry or Gold Standard or Vera, once they're registered, we take what's called a custodianship approach wherein we will also have a wallet or an account on the underlying registry, and they will transfer the credits to us. Now, they still have beneficial ownership. We don't own these credits. It's just a way that we can protect from double accounting and keep things entirely transparent. What we then do is make the digital twin of this carbon credit from the custodianship account on the blockchain, and then it can be actively traded. It can be used in a number of different fashions but ultimately at some point we hope it will be retired that will then be communicated back to the underlying registry and the retirement is complete the kind of journey of the carbon credit is complete great yeah i can see the concept of kind of the bridge coming in there with that interfacing between you and the registry but like maybe let's go a little bit deeper on the bridge itself that you have been working on because i know that's one of the flagship products that you've been working hard on this year yeah, so the bridge is really exciting because those of you who have been following the kind of carbon markets slash blockchain nexus will have heard that post Toucan kind of retiring and then making a digital twin, there was a little bit of backlash from some of the other all of the carbon registries and they were like, whoa, 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 hang on, guys. I mean, Toucan did it at incredible scale. There's like 14 million credits or something around that they brought on chain through that methodology. But what it meant was that they were actually already retired. And anyway, I won't go into the details of that. Ultimately, the, the registry said no more tokenization. Mm-hmm. Put in a hold on everything. And we are not comfortable with anything that's going on yet. So some of the registries decided to start a lengthy workshop and working group process 
which for Goldstone is just actually coming to a close now. I'm super excited about that. But we're not the type of companies to sit on our hands and, and wait for a decision to be made on um, on whether they're going to move forward or not. So what we did is we identified a couple of what we call boutique registries, but I think that actually does them a disservice. They're very high quality. They're just a little bit smaller than some of the larger, more recognizable registries. Sure. And identified that some of these registries, biocarbon registry being the key one, but also eco-registry or Sukabana, had already been built on a private blockchain. And so we reached out and said, look, let's get this to work here. It's great for you guys because it will entice projects to be developed on your registry because of the opportunity to tokenize. And for us, it's a fantastic opportunity to actually bring tokenized credits on chain. And that's what we've built and pioneered with Biocarbon Registry. And it is the first and only at this point two-way bridge where credits can be moved on and off chain with the underlying registry. And We've open sourced with all the other registries how we've done it. And what's super exciting about that is that the feedback has been fantastic from the other registries. And we're, I can't go into too many specifics, but we're hopeful that another much larger registry will be taking some of the learnings that we've gone through with Biocarbon Registry and opening up to tokenization in Q1 next year. Yeah, we're super excited about that. And it's been a real kind of proof of concept. The the great thing is as well is that we're already getting demand and we haven't even launched the exchange yet. So people who've seen what we've built with Biocarbon Registry have said, right, okay, how can we buy carbon credits off you? So when we do launch, we'll be launching with already quite a bit of liquidity that's gone through the on-chain bridge. And I think the final thing about the bridge, I will say, is that it was bloody hard to build, not just from a technical (laughs) perspective, but all the legal integrations, securities, KYC. Interesting, yeah. What we identified is that not every blockchain project is going to want to do this. It's too much of an effort. And it's, to be honest, if if you're not an exchange, it's actually probably quite a big distraction. So mm-hmm. what we're also enabling, what we're calling it anyway, is bridging as a service. So software as a service, but it's a new sexier upgrade. And we'll enable Web3 organizations to utilize our bridges for as, as long as they pass all the kind of terms of use from the original registry so that there's more opportunities that can come into the blockchain space. But also... What's very interesting is the bridge can be used with legacy carbon marketplace. And this infrastructural piece is key, specifically for e-commerce platforms. I won't say exactly who, but we're hoping to launch a pilot with an e-commerce platform where you go onto their website and let's say you're buying shampoo or trainers or whatever it may be. What you'll be able to do is purchase carbon offsets to negate the impact of that purchase. So they'll do a life cycle cost analysis on the product, and then you can essentially wrap it with carbon. Now, why do they need blockchain and a trusted bridge to enable this? Most products are in the kilograms in terms of their impact on the environment. And typically, you will only be able to buy one ton of carbon. Sure, yeah. When you bring these carbon credits on chain, you can fractionalize them to the nth degree. 
And so all of a sudden, kilogram wrapping of products with kilograms of carbon is possible. And mm, so fractionalization, yeah. Yeah, it could be done through APIs and so forth. So this kind of bridge is something that is a is key infrastructural piece for the entire market, not just bridging credits to Web3, but also bridging credits into or plugins into existing ecosystems in the Web2 space. So super exciting there. Yeah, and it also answer, started to answer some questions that I you know, typically ask also around business model. Do you think that'll be a main component or significant component of the business the next few years is that kind of bridging as a service? Yeah, so our business model is based on transactions. Like I said earlier, we don't hold carbon credits. We don't put an increase on the cost of carbon that the developer puts the price on. And we don't take a cut of that. It's just not how we envision a fair market operating. So absolutely, I think bridging as a service has an opportunity to scale enormously. The volume of transactions with a few key clients can really open up the market and actually increase participation in from an individual basis, which we think is very much lacking. So whilst initially we're absolutely focused on the MVP, which is the exchange, and proving that there's demand for on-chain credits, which, I mean, it's hard to do in the legacy carbon markets at this stage because anyone who says there's a supply shortage doesn't really understand the markets. The key issue... Interesting you say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hear that a lot. It's just categorically not true. Say more about that. <laughs> okay, so we speak to traders on a daily basis. We speak to demand-side clients on a daily basis. If you look at the market as a whole, there are still millions and millions and millions of what we call ghost credits that are just sat there. A lot of the demand in the carbon markets is through traders and brokers. It's not a huge amount that's being retired. It's increasing, which is fantastic, but nowhere near the scale that we need to start solving the problems on the planet or even really meeting this 50 billion target by 2030. It was barely reached two billion last year. So we've still got a long, long way to go. And the big problem there is demand. So there's a lot of you're saying I mean, that stands to reason. I can see how there's a lot of credits on existing registries that haven't been retired. Some of that is a quality consideration though, right? Like some of those are absolutely older vintages that folks or methodologies that folks have lost some faith or at least have question marks around. So I guess it's kind of the folks that say there's a supply side challenge might be referring to things like quality or very specific categories that you might be able to like filter in your queryable database. Yeah, I think that's true to an extent. But of course, there are particular projects and particular project types, in fact, that you as an organization or an individual should be wary of not purchasing. But one of the things that annoys me a little bit about the market is that People are saying, oh, this is a bad credit. This is a bad credit. This is a good credit. You need to do this. What we actually need, again, and it comes to our initial point and the reason that Thalos here is scale. Mm -hmm. And in order to scale, we can't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm -hmm. We need to be throwing the kitchen sink at the climate problem. Of course, there are going to be some credits that, I mean, there's credits that I've purchased where I look back, I'm like, ooh, probably didn't account too much. But you can rectify that going forward. The most important thing is action. 
And with this kind of, of course, quality and integrity is vital, but don't be scared to engage in the carbon markets because that's literally the conversations that we're having with organizations. It's like, oh, we don't want to get involved because there's so much risk of backlash. Right. It's kind of like a chicken or the egg problem. Like someone needs to come in and reestablish trust. Yeah. But back to the kind of the demand issue, that there really, really just is not enough demand in the carbon markets. And high quality Red Plus projects aren't selling out. They're being held by brokers. But if you just look at the price action on nat- NGO, on CBL, so nature-based products, like the price is going down and down and down because no one's buying. And it's partly to do with the narrative, but also to do with the fact that it's very hard to participate in the market. Mm-hmm. It's not easy for individuals. It's not easy for businesses. They have to go through brokers. And again, this comes back to why it's so important from our perspective as Thalo, to disintermediate, to make it easy, to make it liquid, and to make it actually like an open secondary market, like mm-hmm. something that you can increase the value of, hold it as, a, as an asset, because eventually there will be a supply shortage, but it needs engagement, and um, that's what we're looking to build. Yeah. So zooming out, looking ahead to 2023, by the time this podcast goes live, it'll probably be 2023. Mm -hmm. What are some benchmarks or signs that you'll be looking for to say like, yes, like this is working in the way that we wanted. We're heading in the right direction. Like what are some kind of milestones or even metrics that you're excited to track against? As I mentioned earlier, this year has been build, build, build. We had a really exciting seed round that was oversubscribed even in the current climate. But what we're looking to do towards the end of next year is do a Series A. But in order to do a Series A, you great having a concept, but you need proof of concept. And what does that look like for us? There's two things. There's two phases to the, the strategy. So the first is over the next six months, whilst we're waiting for more registries to mm-hmm. be able to enable tokenization, because at this point we're limited, is focusing on product and developing a product that through lots of engagement with organizations that we're talking to, is exactly what the market is looking for. So product refinement through market testing. Now, the second phase, the second half of the year, will be literally scale, 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 scale. What we want to do before we get to that Series A point is have 150 large organizations. And I mean, you can look at the large organization type, over 250 staff, over 50 million turnover, whatever the classification is alongside other medium size and small, but we want the large organizations to be the key point. That's from the exchange perspective. And then from a volume perspective, we're actually just talking about that now. So I wouldn't want to, because of the bridging as a service, looking to scale quite significantly. In fact, I won't mention, if that's all right, the volumes, because I I don't have an accurate number at this stage. Um, No problem. But what what I can say is that we want to have traded, we want to have facilitated over 10 million trades of carbon credits by the end of next year. Fantastic. I think when folks hear, you know, some folks might hear that number and some of the other goals, and it could be helpful to have tie it all the way back to the starting point, which is like how that impacts project developers, right? So maybe just, you know, say a little bit more about what you were talking about earlier, which is you actually go out and meet some of the folks that are doing this on the ground work that sometimes it can feel a little abstracted. We're talking about like credits on a blockchain, but at the end of the day, it's real people doing 
real work out in the wild, as it were. So yeah. I'd love to close with a little bit of perspective on what that's like. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Again, something that can be very overlooked. Like you say, it's very easy to look at it from a financial perspective, even a carbon perspective. But actually, what this is about is as much as it is carbon, it's the human perspective. And I released, uh, well, Thala released a, not so much a podcast, but an interview with some of the developers in Biofix. And what was really enlightening and inspiring for me was the fact that they are so focused in supporting the indigenous communities that without the carbon markets would have no access to finance. And that's such an important thing to remember when you're engaging in these markets is the additional kind of SDGs is the term, but it's the additional benefits to individuals and humans and the kind of forgotten South in some parts that otherwise over 70 years, there has been world aid has tried to support or tried to finance projects there and done a terrible job. The free market approach to the voluntary carbon markets has enabled finance to flow to these areas effectively, efficiently, and with fallow, but it will be transparently and at a greater scale. And that's what I think is super exciting. Yeah, I mean, it's such a common topic these days, whether it was a COP27 or even COP15 with biodiversity now, just talking about like what is the appropriate transfer of wealth from developed nations to developing nations, just even if you purely look at it in terms of who's responsible for the most emissions mm-hmm. over the last 300 years and who's actually going to bear the brunt of those impacts, a big mismatch there. And I think, you know, to your point, there's been challenges with philanthropy. Like philanthropy alone is not going to bridge that gap. I'm sure there's a lot of organizations that do fantastic philanthropic work, no doubt. But yeah, thinking about the carbon market as a potential vehicle for that transfer is uh, not something that I previously thought of, but I'm glad that came out of this conversation. Yeah, I mean... Can you think of a fairer way to support communities that are literally shepherding the lungs of the world, like the rainforests, or and whether it's like the DRC? It's also exciting to think if we can value carbon properly, how it can be a real, real alternative. If we can price carbon effectively, it can become a real alternative to oil and gas. What I mean by that is you will have, you might have seen that earlier on this year, the Democratic Republic of Congo issued licenses for more oil and gas exploration in the Congo Basin. Right, really important ecosystems. Absolutely vital. And okay, it's exploration at this point, but if they get approved, then it starts increasing into actual extraction. Now, imagine if we could price the carbon of these areas of land effectively and start selling the carbon credits for the Democratic Republic of Congo or for project developers from that area, all of a sudden there's a real clear incentive as to why they shouldn't proceed with oil and gas exploration in those areas. Right, strong counter incentive. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, who are we to say how you support your citizens? Of course, the, everyone needs money. Like it, it needs to come for health, for education. But if there's a just as much money or enough money paid by people to protect these spaces, then perhaps, yeah, at these areas will, will the Democratic Republic of Congo and others could look at that as a, an alternative. And that's super exciting. Right on. It's a very laudable goal.
All right, Joe, thanks so much for coming on. Where should folks follow for updates on Thalo and, and your thinking? And where should folks look for opportunities to get involved if that's of interest to them? Sure. So please, everyone, go onto the website, Thalo, T-H-A-L-L-O dot I-O. That way you can sign up to be the user of the MVP, but also get tuned into all of our blogs and podcasts or interviews that we do. We're releasing things all the time. For me, one of my New Year's resolutions is going to be getting better at Twitter. So <laughs> if I get a few more followers, then that's a good incentive for me to work on that at Joe Hargreaves 91. And the Thalo Twitter is at Thalo underscore IO. So I promise I'm going to put some good content up there on our thoughts and what we've nice. been working on on a more regular basis. Fantastic. All right. Well, I'll make sure to keep an eye out on there myself. And otherwise, it's been good chatting. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what y'all accomplish in, in the next year. Cheers, Nick. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having us on. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.